When tested, the rich man does what the rich man always does, what the rich man believes he is entitled to do by virtue of being the rich man. He begs Abraham to send Lazarus to his aid because that is all Lazarus is to him. Good morning. Um, it's good to it's good to see you all. It's weird to be here instead of there, but I'm practicing for a few months from now. Crossing fingers, praying prayers, all of that stuff. But for now, it's been a week. This past week, I don't know if you noticed, but it was a lot. Um, so I'm going to just review a little bit. Um, this past week started with the Queen of England's fantastically opulent funeral that took all day, which dominated global headlines, all of them, even as, a, as massive natural disasters hit both Puerto Rico and the western coast of Mexico, leaving millions of people traumatized and without running water or electricity. Then on Tuesday, uh, 48 Minnesotans right here were indicted in the largest to date COVID-19 fraud scheme in which they are alleged to have stolen upwards of $250 million of federal aid that was meant to feed hun hungry families during the pandemic. On Wednesday, another family that is fairly well known was indicted in another $250 million scheme to defraud insurers. I don't even know all of it. We'll see where that goes, right? And over on Instagram during all of this, because when I leave the news, I go to Instagram for pretty pictures and fun photos of, of for example, an alligator cuddling with ducks and not killing them. That's amazing. But also, there are these images, these entire slideshows on real estate gossip pages that share the $100 million homes that are just being purchased and sold and traded and swapped between millionaires and celebrities in LA and Miami, the way that my cousin group trades the same $15 back and forth between us based on who needs lunch this day or who needs gas that day or who needs just another $5 to get through to payday, which is still three days away. So as I read and studied today's gospel, all of this was swirling in my head and my claws were out and my hackles were raised and I felt not a little bit of rage as I recognized the wildly different experiences of the haves and the have-nots of right here and now in the pages of a story from millennia ago. Now, despite the hackles, some questions immediately came to mind. Firstly, who or what fixed the chasm between the rich man in Hades and Lazarus in Abraham's bosom? And secondly, 
where or what is Hades, and what is the nature of the rich man's torment there. So I did some digging, and to the first question of what or who, fa- what or who fixed the chasm, I'm sorry to say that I found no satisfying answers. Commentators have disagreed. Commentators have ignored it altogether. And so there's nothing there. I even emailed a seminary professor who knows answers and knows Greek. And he said, well, the Greek says (laughs) a great chasm has been fixed. And so I moved on. (laughs) Annoyed, I moved on. I really wanted to know who put it there. But the second question presented a lot more interesting loot. First of all, Hades is not the hell that I was handed as a child, the everlasting pit of eternal conscious suffering to which I would be forever condemned if I did not say the right prayer or pray the right things or live the right life or affirm the right doctrines during my very few short years on earth. Instead, Hades is simply the realm of departed souls. Most fundamentally, it is not here, not life. And to the question of what is to be tormented, I love this. This was fantastic. To be tormented is simply to be tested. The Greek here is very illuminating. The word for being tormented is basanois, and it stems from the word basanos, which is a touchstone, a black silicone-based stone used for examining and testing the purity of metals like gold and silver. The rich man is in the realm of the departed being tested. More specifically, He is being tested in the realm of the departed with the very same suffering that tormented Lazarus in the realm of the living, which is to say the pain and suffering here matter, but they're not the point, nor are they universal in application. They're just the process of the test. The point being that the rich man is being given one last opportunity to see Lazarus. And what does the text say he does? He begs Abraham for mercy. Have mercy on me and forgive me for having ignored Lazarus' suffering in life, for now I know what it's like to suffer without aid. (sighs) No. Does he beg for a chance to confess, repent, and be transformed through reparation and repair that he may be purified by the touchstone and made whole? Again, no, he does not. When tested, the rich man does what the rich man always does, what the rich man believes he is entitled to do by virtue of being the rich man. He begs Abraham to send Lazarus to his aid because that is all Lazarus is to him. At worst, a nothing, a nobody, invisible to all but the dogs who lick his sores, and at best, a servant 
who can be lent out like a slave either to do the rich man's bidding to end his suffering or to be sent back to the realm of his torment, of Lazarus's torment, to aid his tormentor's brothers. The rich man begs for Lazarus's labor because the rich man cannot fathom a world in which he is not intrinsically better than, superior to, or wholly different and separate from the poor beggar man. And so I return to the first question of what and where the chasm comes from, and I see now that the second answer, or the second question answers the first. The chasm is not created for the dead as some eternal punishment designed by God or the devil. The chasm already exists in this realm, in this life, between the haves and the have-nots, between the rich men and the Lazaruses. And it is here because the rich built it, the rich sustain it, and the rich grow it with every flaunt and flourish of ill-gotten wealth. And my friends, it is painful to say, but it is nevertheless true that all excess is ill-gotten, or at very least ill-kept. For whoever has what a neighbor needs but does not help them has not the love of God in them. 1 John 3.17 If a sibling is without clothes and food and you say to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but you do nothing about their physical needs, what good is it in the same way faith by itself without accompany, if not accompanied by action is dead? That's James 2.15-17. And from today's text, Old Testament, alas, alas for those who live in ease, lay in luxury, feast on the best foods, entertain themselves with the best music, but are not grieved for the ruin of their neighbors, alas. Amos 6, 1 through 7. The point is this. Chasms are fixed not by the gods, nor by the stars, nor by any external or eternal forces, but by us. And they make this place and this realm and this life into hell right now. For every Lazarus who begs on the corner but whose eyes we refuse to meet, for every unhoused family we allow to sleep on the streets or allowed to be swept away by police who are more concerned, in, of, more concerned about protecting property values than they are preserving human lives. It is hell for every person who has need of what we possess, but may as well be standing on the far side of a fixed and uncrossable chasm for all our unwillingness to share from our abundance. The good news, and thank God, beloved, beloved, there will always be good news so long as we live. The good news is that we still live. The chasm exists, to be sure, and the gulf between the ultra-rich and the rest of us and the, rich, the rest of us and the ultra-poor, it widens every single day, but it is not yet fixed. 
it can still be crossed. And so we have this invitation, an opportunity to be tested right now. And I think that opportunity is summed up nicely by a person named Lexis on Twitter, who wrote this week, nobody is trying to fix the problems we have in this country. Everyone is trying to make enough money so the problems don't apply to them anymore. And so I ask, what are we fixing? The problems or the chasm? Are we going to fix our minds on becoming the rich man who lives on the luxury side of the chasm, trading mansions like matchbox cars among other rich men, and in so doing secure and fix the chasm and the hell that others live in on the opposite side? Or are we going to dismantle it with every connection that we build between those who either have what we need or need what we have? Are we going to live lives of, in, of luxurious individuality or intentional mutuality? Are we going to store up for ourselves riches on earth where moth and rust destroy? Or will we, like our ancestors of the faith in Acts 4, share everything in common and heal the chasms of want and greed within communities of radical connection? Friends, I have no idea what will or won't happen, where I will or won't go when my life in this realm ends. And so I see little reason to speculate. What I do know is that what we do here matters. How we think about and talk about and distribute wealth matters. Greed and possessiveness create chasms and insulate us from the needs of those around us, making it easy to see those who have less as being lesser. But we can create connections too. And every single connection, no matter how small, tugs at a thread that unmakes the chasms between us. So I leave you with this. Earlier this week, my husband went to pick up pizza at our local joint, and before he left, he grabbed some cash because he always sees a woman asking for a buck to buy some pop. And because he's that kind of guy, he thought of her before he left, and he took with him an intention to look at her, to see her, to notice her, to cross a chasm, and make a connection so she could get some pop. This kind of thing has been an ongoing conversation in our family as of late, as more and more corners are occupied by people begging for cash. How do we perceive them? What do we do? Do we judge them as lazy or pathetic for working a corner for $15 an hour instead of a desk for 12 what do we do when we catch ourselves replaying, re, replaying cultural mythologies about beggars and quietly deciding not to give them money that they'll only send, spend on things like booze, things 
we might be just as likely to spend our money on, but with a lot less judgment. What would happen if we just gave them some money? Because we live in a world that is expensive and where every dollar shared in affirmation or every dollar shared in mutuality is an affirmation of humanity and innate dignity and that the deepest truth of all is that all our liberation is bound up together. So that's my challenge for you this week. Carry some cash. And when you see a beggar on the corner, look them in the eye, smile to their face, and give them the money. And may the doing test our hearts and unmake chasms and may Christ go with you so that all of us may be saved in the sharing of God's abundance.